Lord, we are just as we did communion and we're just reminded again of your great sacrifice, of your great love for us, because really there's, there's no other explanation but for why you would do what you did. And we're just grateful to you and we're in love with you and just thankful to you. Lord, we do lift up Sean and Autumn as they drive home today and just pray you give them a safe trip. And even as he's teaching now, just that you would give him um, just your words and your peace and your joy and, and all that stuff. And, and we just thank you for him and for all his hard work and for his devotion to our fellowship and pray you bless their time together today. And uh, Lord, we do just lift up our fellowship to you and pray you would continue, continue to mold us into your image and use us in this community, Lord, for all our various ministries, the men's ministry and the women's ministry and the children's ministry, and as we even mentioned, the, the audiovisual and the worship team and all these things we do here, Lord, we pray that it would ultimately just bring glory to you and that we, again, just, you know, the lives that you want to see change, that you would use us in that, God, in this community. We lift up the bridge the youth center downtown, and just pray for your continued guidance and provision in that. Um, I know we need volunteers and and um, all the stuff, all the logistical issues with that, Lord. We pray you, again, just continue to guide us and provide for us and let us be led by your spirit. And we just look forward to all the, the work you're going to do in these kids' lives and and uh, just pray for a, a great a great work down there, Lord. God, as we are reminded, Lord, on Tuesday, this election coming up. And, Lord, we know that the great thing about serving you, your this great sovereign God, that we can wake up on Wednesday morning and you're still God, regardless of what happens. And, Lord, we're your church, we just thank you for how you've guided your church and sustained it. And uh, through all the centuries, through all these different kingdoms that have risen and fallen, and Lord, but, you know, in light of that, we just, we do, we lift up our nation and pray that your will be done. And we pray that your people would stand up for righteousness within the system and outside the system. And we do pray for a revival in our nation, just a return to righteousness, to humility before you. And uh, we just pray for our nation, God, and for this upcoming election, which is so frightening in so many ways. But Lord, we know we can have faith in you. And uh, Lord, I finally, I just pray as we get into your word that we would draw near to you and that you would change our hearts and reveal to us your will and just more of who you are. In Jesus' name again, we pray. Amen. So, in my personal time, as part of my kind of scripture memorization thing that I've been doing the last couple of years. I've been working through 1 John chapter 4. And something I've noticed while doing this in various passages of scripture, some really small, some longer, is that how rich a certain passage can become the more you just work on it and work on it and work on it and work on it and work on it. And you read it at least once a week. And how in doing that, that familiarity you know, will bring out a new or um, a different, maybe even, aspect to that scripture. And in that familiarity, how it can just literally become a part of, of who you are as a person. And, you know, you, 
You can do the same thing. You know, I'm an art lover, and it's hard these days because there's a lot of bad art out there that you don't even want to look at. But just, you know, when you see a painting for the first time, you get a certain impression of it. Maybe you like it. Maybe you hate it. But you come back and you look at it again. Maybe you see something a little different. Maybe you, you know, as you continue to be more and more familiar with it, you know, you, you start maybe to go beyond just the, the, the appearance of it and get behind it into, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to me? What was the artist thinking when he made it? And it just, you know what I'm saying? As you, as you dive into that, it can become more and more. For some of you, I mean, you're like, I don't know anything. I, I don't know what he's talking about about art. You know, for maybe some of those of you that hunt, you've got a certain place where you go hunt every year. And you know every tree, every rock, every, you know, every place where, they, where the, the you know, deer or elk or whatever it is, where they sleep, where they eat, where, what they do. And you become so familiar with that place, it almost starts to become like a second home. You know, some of you like, maybe it's a restaurant that you go to. And, you know, they, they come up and they say, oh, how you doing, John? What, do you have the regular today? And you don't even need a menu. You, you know, you set the menu aside and, and you just, you know, you just make up your own meals. You ever go to people like that you say, I'll have number three, but, you know, I want you to do this, this, and this to it. And, you, and they know you there and you feel welcome there. And it becomes a much richer experience than if you had just visited one time and never went back. So... The word is like that, guys, and I just want, you know, it's always my encouragement. Um, Ty, I don't know why you're laughing. It's probably because there's a lot of restaurants in town that that's what happens, right? You go there once, you never go back. So but, uh, <laughs> at least that's been my experience, too. But, you know, that's just my encouragement, again, that, you know, have a regular Bible study. You know, I used to use this daily re- uh, Bible reading plan. And it kind of takes you through every day. But in addition to that, just maybe you come across a certain scripture that's really speaking to you and just, and just keep it and just go over it and over it and over it and over it. And uh, at least that's been beneficial to me. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole first chapter of John 4. First John chapter 4, pardon me. And it's a little bit long, but we've got a little bit of time. It always seems like we won't have time at the end, but we have it now. So, again, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because... God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Home stretch, just a few more verses. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that's a lot to take in. But what's the one word we hear over and over and over again? It's love, right? Over and over and over again. And the Apostle John was one of the 12 apostles that we saw at the Last Supper. We did communion earlier. He was one of those, we're told, that was leaning on Jesus' breast during that meal. This is a man who wrote this book who knew Jesus, not as just one of the 12, but one of his three of the 12 who were his very closest confidants, his companion through everything. James, Peter, and John. James and John were brothers. And guys, I want, you know, just the words that we just read, he wrote those words. That is a historical fact. This guy, these words that we read are firsthand testimony to a man who lived and walked and talked with Jesus Christ himself. These are not, I mean, there's those that will debate that still to this day, but that is a settled fact. The overwhelming evidence of that, that is the truth. And we're so beaten down these days by so many skeptics, but this has been settled stuff for a long time. And every time they come up with a new discovery, it only furthers to bolster the reliability of the Gospels, not the other way around. They've never been disproved, but they've been attacked for 2,000 years. And they still stand today just like they did when they were first written. You know, he testifies to this fact in verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He has seen these things. He's testified to these things. He had nothing to gain from this. I want you also to understand that, that when you testified to Christ in the early first century, you had everything to lose. You had nothing to gain. He states, we are from God, in verse 6. And that's this bold claim 
again asserting his apostleship in the authority of his testimony. Some of you might be familiar with the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which he also wrote, which was also a first-hand account. Okay, so, and that's, and that's the thing, you know, you'll hear today that these Gospel accounts, they're corrupted. They're written hundreds of years after the fact. You know, it would be like someone in the 1800s writing about George Washington or something like that. They didn't know him, they didn't. Those are lies. That's not true. The manuscript evidence is settled science, okay? So let's just get that on the table. These aren't stories. These aren't storyteller, you know, some storyteller that wrote these myths hundreds of years later. This is what a man who would walked and talked with Jesus, his own personal testimony to the things he had. And the book of 1 John was written way towards the end of his life. It's really, you could almost look at, and I've taught on this book before, you guys probably have heard me say it, but it's kind of the summation of the things that, that he had learned throughout a life of walking with Christ in the Spirit as well as the flesh. So don't let that escape you this morning. When we read these things, let's remember that, man. I mean, you know, and, and it is, it's, it's easy to forget that today. So, I mean, those of you who are saved today... Did you know you have an equally valid first-hand testimony of the work that God has done in your own life? So we have what would be, at worst, a second-hand testimony. He told me, and now I'm telling you. But then we have that first-hand testimony of the work that God's done in our own lives. Those of you, maybe like myself, that have been delivered from substance abuse. You know, I had someone offer me a beer yesterday. Well, I've been sober almost 20 years. That's a work of God. That is a miracle of God. If any, you have no idea, but that was the, that's the absolute truth. That's my best part of my firsthand testimony. And each one of you that are saved, whether it's from something like that or whatever else it is, man, that's, you have the same spiritual power that the Apostle John had in writing this thing now when you, when you speak to people. So remember that. Now, I like this chapter 4. The reason I kind of settled on it is because what I see in it it's kind of this self-contained capsule, if you will, that of the entire gospel. That, in effect, if you were if you were stuck on a desert island and you had a scrap of paper, and this is all you had, this is all you had. That's it. I mean, that might happen someday. It would be sufficient for you to evangelize, to encourage, to teach, to correct. And to sufficiently and even abundantly live the Christian life. And you might say, you know, that's, that's crazy. That's hyperbole. You know, we like the whole counsel of God, and we certainly do. But God in his ultimate wisdom has, has done this throughout the Scripture. This isn't the only passage. Because, you know, and I, th- and I think he did this. I mean, this is just pure speculation. I don't claim to speak for God in this matter. But, you know, in, in times of persecution... You know, there are these sections of Scripture that can serve as this, this entirety of the gospel. Not that they're, you know, um, and, that's, and that's the way it was in ancient times. Remember, I mean, it's an incredible luxury these days for us to have an entire Bible. No one had that back in the early church. They had little scraps of papyrus and stuff that they would treasure that would maybe have just a few precious words of Jesus, and they would pass them around, and they would read them over and over again, and they would trade them and say, oh, you've got a part of Corinthians? Let me check that out, you know, and I'd read that. And then, oh, you've got some of the gospel? And, and then over the centuries, those, those things began to be compiled and put all together because 
I mean, they were all together at one point, but, you know, things get destroyed. <laughs> uh, enemies are... So, any case, what I see in chapter John, uh, 1 John chapter 4 is this encapsulation. So, if they ever come to confiscate your Bibles, this is one page you could just rip out and, you know, hide in your pocket or something. <laughs> yeah, sure, take my Bible. There's a few of those in here. <laughs> because it does, it kind of rounds out the gospel. And really, when Jesus said, he said, the law is fulfilled... In love, the law and the prophets fulfilled in love, and we see that that's what John's talking about in here. So, and that's and and he uses this definition of God. He says it twice in this chapter: God is love. You know, so this apostle, this intimate friend of Jesus, here towards the end of his long life, this is how he chooses to define God. Let me read again in verse six. Or excuse me, verse 4 through 6. That's not right. Verse 8. <laughs> Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then again in verse 16, I think if my notes were correct, for some reason they weren't last time. That's not right either, is it? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> I need, hold on a second. You know, I brought these just in case, and I'm glad I did. I found these little things that they made. I found them very useful of late. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but we're going to put them on anyway. I didn't even know these existed until recently. But <laughs> So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. If you abide in love, you abide in God. Now, if I had to ask you this morning to define God in one word to somebody you may meet, or a family member or a friend, is that the word that you would use? Is that the one thing you would say if they said, who is God? What is this God? You know, would you say God is love? Or maybe you would. Perhaps you would answer faithful. God is faithful. And we know that's definitely true. God is sovereign. He is true. Maybe you'd even break out a big Christian word like God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. And all these things are true as revealed to us in his word, but do not all those things, all these other things that we could describe as revealed to us in his word, would they not be contained within that definition, God is love? I think all the other attributes that we could come up with, again, not that we just make up on our own, but as revealed in our scripture, are, are encompassed within that. And I think at the end of John's life, he understood that. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote that definition. Now, Jesus taught, as recorded in Matthew 22, verses 38 through 39, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
So Jesus essentially says that within this love, and that is the same exact word used that Jesus has used here that John uses in his uh, letter, the first John. It's the same word. He says essentially that this love, this selfless, sacrificial adoration and affection, all of Scripture is contained. Now, that's just how John in the first... Now, he... Okay... He defines God as love, right? Jesus, the Word, defines the law and the prophets. All, that was all of known Scripture is that at that day. Remember, the Jews considered that's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. He says all those commandments, all the law and the prophets depend loving God and loving one another. So Jesus, the Word, again, himself defines all those things as love, it would then stand to reason that the Word, Christ Himself, the very embodiment and express image of the Father, is in effect love personified. And I, you know, I kind of butchered that. I'm trying to read my notes here with bad eyes. But again, John says God is love. Jesus is the Word. Jesus Himself says the Word is comprised in love. The whole thing, you see it all coming together, and that's what we've got to get across to people. You say love today, it means a lot of different things to, to different people, does it not? I mean, when you say God is love, well, what does that mean? Does that mean he's, you know, uh, tolerant of everything that, I've, that I ever do? Or is, does that mean that he's going to give me everything I ever ask for? Does that mean, you know, what does, what does that love mean? And for us, it's very simple. Jesus Christ, we look at him and his life and his teachings and what he did, and that's our definition. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he does flesh that out a little bit in terms of how that should affect our daily life and being patient and kind and long-suffering. But ultimately, Jesus Christ himself is the definition of love. It's funny, he gives, that's, that's, that's the point I was trying to make. When Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, Remember, in discussing with the Pharisees at one point, he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. And they knew the scripture to an excruciatingly, you know, excruciating detail. They knew the scripture. You search them, but they're all about me. Look at me, and you will see the totality of the teachings of God. Now, again, that's what we've got to get across to people, guys. Because that's exactly the opposite of what they think. When you, today, in our culture, if you mention, yeah, I believe in the Bible, do they think, oh, you're a very loving person. You must be very loving. Is that what they think? You know, or is, do they think, you're a hater. You must hate me because, you know, I don't fit in. I don't, you know, I'm into all this perversity. I'm into all this other stuff. And so you hate me. That's the exact opposite. And that's the battle that we're fighting right now. You know, love is not how the unbelieving world defines the Bible or Christians or God himself. And we see the effects of that in every aspect of our society today. So when I first began this study, um, I'm going to diverge just a little bit. When I first began kind of to figure out what it was I was going to teach on. I've had a relatively short turnaround. It's like 
just a couple weeks, he just dropped it on me like that. Can you believe he did that to me? Because they're like, be quiet, I don't care. So, <laughs> so um, I thought, what other passages, you know, are perhaps that concise in their definition of God? Simply, God is blank. God is this. God is that. And so, you know, I just typed in. I used the Blue Letter Bible online. It's a great resource for, resource for those of you. If you, you know, it's got everything you can imagine on there. It's totally free, so I'll do a plug for Blue Letter Bible. But in any case, I, I plugged in God is. And as you can imagine, there's a, a, a plenitude of results that come up, um, 178, based on the version that I often use, the English Standard Version. And within those results, you say 178, there's a lot to disseminate, and a lot of them aren't really a definition at all. It's like, you know, God is doing this thing, you know, but, but a bunch of them are. One of the most prevalent ones is God is giving. God is giving. And that's used 36 times. And it's almost all in Deuteronomy. And it's where Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he's, saying, and, and he's um, elucidating to them, God is giving you this land. God is giving you this inheritance, in effect, that he had promised you all along. God is bringing you into, you know, he's, he's about to fulfill all the things that he'd promised to you, you know, all those hundreds of years ago through your father Abraham. But that phrase, God is giving, God is giving, God is giving, God is giving, 36 times throughout that book. And when you just kind of take off what, I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that define who God is, a giving God? And you really think about that, he never takes. There's nothing he takes from us. He gives us everything. It's not in his nature to take. Now, you say, well... You know, I give my tithes out there, you know, every Sunday morning. He takes that, don't he? You know, I'm just saying he, he already gave you that. That's the thing. Whatever he receives from us, his, our praise, our thanks, our prayers, are, are things that he's already given us. You can't add anything to God. He doesn't need to take anything from us. He is always giving all the time. Now... You know, that's in direct contrast, again, to the idea that the world has of God. And really, the idea is that all of all the other gods, gods that people serve are takers. They, that's all they do is take, you know? And uh, we won't go much into that, but I just love that aspect of that. God is giving. Three times, we see Paul will define God saying, and uh, again, writing to the Corinthians, um, God is faithful. And we talked about that earlier. And a lot of you know firsthand, yes, absolutely, God is faithful. Meaning reliable, dependable, will never leave you, forsake you. And a lot of you can testify to that fact. I know I certainly can. But just another, God is. God is faithful. Seven times we're told, and this is kind of in a smattering of Scripture in the Old uh, in the Old Testament primarily, God is with you. God is with you. God is present. He's there for you. And that says a lot about his character as well. Speaking of his desire to be with us and to be present. 
And then in the Psalms, I mean, David just, he just goes off the rails. I mean, he's got a hundred different God is. There's all kinds of different ones within that. And just so many different facets of God's character and all the, the ways that he had experienced God's deliverance and things. But I'll just go through a few. He says, God is a righteous judge. God is mighty. God is forever. God is the king. God is a refuge, a tower. And again, God is for me. God is merciful. God is salvation. So all these different definitions that poetically David, in writing the Psalms primarily, he, again, in his experience with God, had come to know God in those different various ways. But if we take all those things together, again, God is giving. God is faithful. God is with us. God is present. You know, aren't they summed up in that phrase, God is love? I mean, doesn't it, you know, when you love somebody, don't you want to be present with them? Or do you want to, like, have nothing to do with them? Right? You never, never hang out, never talk to them, never call them. I mean, is that love? No. God wants to be with us all the time. God is giving. When you love somebody, don't you want to give things to them? You see something in the store or online or whatever, and you think, oh, that'd be great to get that for that person. You know, because you love them. And all these other aspects as well, you know, uh, to be protective, you know, and those allusions to be in a refuge or a tower, to be merciful. You know, when you love someone, you want to show them mercy. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt when they mess up. You know, when you hate somebody, you're real quick to just, you, you did this to me because you meant this, this, and this, and you have this whole scenario played out. And they're like, I don't know, I just was trying to change lanes. And, you know, I, yeah, anyway, I, you know I'm always going to come back to driving because I must have a struggle with that. But So we see all these attributes of God that's, that are summed up in this thing. God is love. But can't we also, you know, on our own kind of demonstrate some of these qualities sometimes? I mean, can't we be giving? Can't we be faithful at times? I mean, are you guys with me on this, or are you like, no, I can never be giving. I'm a very stingy person. Can't we demonstrate attributes of love on our own? And so let's just, you know, you, do, you see these uh, really, really smart people. They come up with these little, uh, I don't even know what they're called, but it's kind of a logical progression here. And it says, uh, okay, so we know what we've looked at in Scripture, God is love, Right? Man can love, so man is God. Does that make sense to anybody? Ty's looking at me like, what's he talking about over here? Well, of course that's absurd, right? We can demonstrate maybe some of these qualities some of the time. Maybe we can be loving here, but very hateful over here. And the very second that we fail to be perfect in that thing, we are no longer able to be defined by that thing right? Jesus is good. Good all the time in every way, forever and ever. Maybe we can be good for a second, maybe. <laughs> Very doubtful. But maybe we can, but like when the, you know, this young ruler, he comes up to Jesus as good teacher, he says, no one's good but God, because God is good all the time to everybody forever. And the very second that we fail in one aspect, we're guilty of all. So, of course, we know that that little, whatever it's called, God is love, man can love, man is God. 
Of course, we know that's absurd. We are not God. We can't love perfectly all the time as he does. Because inevitably, we'll resort to selfishness or dishonesty or betrayal or laziness. And at that very moment, even in the smallest thing, we fail to be like God. And I would even go so far as to say that without God, there's no true love at all. That even the most sacrificial and pious appearing acts, apart from God, are much less than the love which God is. And we know this, from again, from Scripture as it's revealed to us. Paul, in this great exposition of love in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, like I was talking about, he writes, If I have prophetic powers, man, that'd be a, that'd be a cool gift, right? If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Nothing at all. And you think if we knew somebody that had prophetic powers or could move mountains, I mean, they'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't they? I think they'd be, you know, on, they'd have their own reality show or something like that or beyond, you know. I mean, they, but they're nothing in the eyes of God. I love that verse where Jesus says, you know, the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in God's eyes. Paul says, I'm nothing. I can have all these great gifts and do all these great works for God and yet be nothing without love. And, you know, we think, doesn't it take love to prophesy? I mean, don't you, wouldn't you have to have a relationship with God? Wouldn't you have to love Him for Him to be able to speak through you? You know, doesn't it take love to have faith? But apparently not. Paul, this great apostle, this tireless servant of God, he says, I'm nothing apart from God's love. And now we begin to see the contrast be seen. I mean, we already do, but we're seeing it maybe even clearer, the contrast between ourselves and God. Whereas we say simply, I am nothing in ourselves, God says, and our Lord said, I am. I am. He is, we are not. We're nothing without God, but God is love. And God is, okay, the I am, essentially, just think about this, I am just means God is. You know, even if you want to break this God is love further down and just take the love off of there, I am. God is. He is all the time, everywhere, at all times. And, and you know, we can't even conceive of that. You know, he's not... And that's not some mysterious, eternal, cosmic thing that we can get into. Again, I just want to contrast it a little, a little bit here because one way to, to know what something is is to know what it is not. Right? When you guys look for a, a new car, oftentimes you have to you go and you find a car, you think you like it, you drive it, you say, no, nah, I don't like that car. That car feels weird and it's got a shimmy over here or something like that. And then you go look at another one. You're ruling things out, right? So we've looked at God, but one of the results, the search results in that God is, was God is not a man. Can we all agree on that? It's funny how hard we try to make him like a man, though, isn't it? We try to make him like us all the time, but he's not. It says God in Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? What's funny is this was a, that is an awesome verse. And I I find it funny that God uses honesty and faithfulness to kind of define himself in contrast to us. Like saying, so we're liars and we always change our mind. Is that pretty much, (laughs) that's a very characteristic for humanity. I'm not saying us personally, but, you know, we've all done it. And uh, changeable, feckless. You know, all of us have been let down by somebody else, and we've all let somebody else down. God says, I'm not a man that I should lie or change his mind. Some of your Bibles would say repent. Now, those words are the words of a false prophet. And he, this prophet Balaam, who was this greedy and um, kind of disobedient guy that, that God used anyway, and then he ends up, you know, which I think is, is kind of interesting. But even he knew the, the truth about God. So, again, we said, really, um, so he's not man, but we forget that at times. And we try to kind of reason like, well, if I were God, I would do this. Or I think God should do that, you know? And the moment we do that, we forget. Not only is God not like us in the ways we just talked about, he's nothing like us. He has no, no aspect of us in him. We have an aspect of him in us when we give our lives to him, but he's nothing like us. He's completely apart from lo- from from all of creation. He's intimately involved in it, but he is not subject to it at all, like us. But the amazing thing about that is he became like us by choice. I mean, that's what we were talking about this morning. He came down here. He shamed himself to become like us for a time, and again, for no other reason than for his great and unfailing love for us, period. And it was all for us and not for him, and that's the difference between the changeable, unreliable love of man and the true, steadfast, and unfailing love of our God. Even when he was here, he was like us in that he breathed air. You know, he had blood in his veins. He was a real human being, but he didn't do the things we do. He was without sin. He was faultless. None of us have been able to attain to that. So, earlier in our fallacy that we came up with, God is love. Man can love. Man is God. Now, we know that's, we threw that one out, right? That's not accurate. So, some of you are still pondering that one. It's not true. But really, God is love. God is not man. Man, therefore, is not love. Does that sound a little more accurate? Right? So, and I think we all understand and know this about one another. All we have to do is take this cursory inventory of our lives and remember all the times we've been hurt or betrayed or made fun of or lied to. We can look at our world and see murder and deception, oppression, every foul deed. And we very quickly see that we, mankind, are not love. We are something very different. Ironically, though, that those very things 
people will point to and, and use as a proof against the existence of God. You know what I'm saying? They'll say, well, how could God let all this go on? Well, it's not God. It's ISIS, you know, or it's other people I won't get into. But it's other factions of, of human beings doing this to each other. And really, that's the core of what John is talking about in 1 John 4. And what so many fail to see is that God is not like us, and when we try to understand Him or define, us, define Him by comparing Him to us, we miss it. You know, I recently saw this preview for a movie that is this very thing. It's a, it's a foreign movie. It's in subtitles. I don't even know. You know, I was running through some trailers or whatever, and it came up, and they portray God as this hateful, you know, um, where was that? Let me see. I already I skipped my notes. But um, he's this, you know, foul-mouthed, abusive, vindictive slob who gets joy out of making our lives miserable, you know? And he not only has a son, Jesus, who he's not very proud of and he apparently doesn't really like very much, he has a daughter, and they live in some apartment in Brussels or something like that. I mean, it's really demented stuff. But when we try to make God in our own image, that's exactly what we get. That's exactly what we get. And, you know, um, all of the ancient gods of, you know, of human history have been like that to some degree. They've basically just been a, a version of ourselves, you know, hateful, greedy, murderous, licentious gods who take and, and not give. And when they do give something, it's always with a cost. It's always with a, um, this horrible deal that you have to make to, you know, to get anything out of these false gods. And you know, a great example in Scripture we see is in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'll just, I'll just read that real quick. We'll, we're moving along. So, 18.21 through 24, just a few verses here. And Elijah, this great prophet, of God, some of you might remember Elijah. He came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Baal's, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So he proposes this contest, right? And the people of Israel at this time, they were very divided in their affections. They still had an idea of Yahweh. He was one of the gods they served, but there was this huge cult that had been started by Jezebel, this false gods who had all these prophets, and really that was kind of the fashion of the day, was to worship these false gods. And we see during this time, they both prepare an altar. You know, Again, he sets up a contest. You do your bull, I'll do my bull, but we're not going to light it on fire. It's going to have to be lit by God. And we're told that these prophets of Baal, 450 of them, there were another 400 prophets of this other god, Ashereth, that were there too, but they go around the altar all day long. 
and they're doing their rituals and crying out, probably has some music going, they're doing their thing. Nothing, quiet, all day long. Later on, they get more desperate, and they begin to cut themselves and lance themselves and do all these horrible things to mutilate themselves until it says that blood gushed out upon them, crying out, screaming out, blood running down. And this, this just such a profound verse, it says, no one paid attention. No one said a word. You know, it just like left them in this, in this horrible state. That's what the false gods of this world want from people. You know, to hurt themselves, to debase themselves, to make fools of themselves. You know, what's... And then, you know how the story ends. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Elijah, he goes up there, he soaks the entire altar with water over and over again until the water is running over it. And he prays to God and fire comes down from heaven and just, and not, it just disintegrates the entire thing. It says the... The sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water, everything is just gone. And it just blows people away and they fall down and they worship God. And he answers them. You know? <laughs> so when, you know, the thing that I'm, that I'm getting at is, really in that is, you know, God did this great work. Ultimately, why? I mean, why does he care if these people are, are engaged in this cult worship and they're, you know, because they're hurting themselves. Because they're hurting their families, they're hurting one another, you know, they're, they're engaged in all this perversity, all this horrible stuff that they did, you know, part of that worship was sacrifice of their children. And he's trying to get them to stop because he loves them. And that's why he goes to those great links. You know, on one hand, we see these false prophets just destroying themselves, hurting themselves, and on the other hand, we see Elijah being you know, able to stand there in faith and in boldness and know that his God's not going to ignore him. His God is going to answer him, and he does. So, you know, when we tell people that God is love, when we define God in that way, we've got to make sure that they understand, again, that God is not like us. He doesn't have a hinted agenda. He's not trying to pull one over on us. You know, the great thing about this is we don't have to be relegated to these abstract philosophical or, you know, arguments about you know, the nature of man, what is love, the existence of God, the reality or qualities of love. We don't have to discuss evolution or politics or anything else to really demonstrate the truth of the gospel. You know, a lot of times we get caught up in that, don't we? We have to kind of try to rationally prove what that means. Why should I believe in Jesus Christ? What, what, are, you, you know, what are we talking about? And we, and we can come up with all these things and we get drawn into those things, don't we? Things like I said about you know, politics, evolution, these types of things. But guys, all we have to do is point to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we talked about the Gospels being historically proven that they were written by firsthand witnesses that saw and heard and touched, who saw Jesus alive, who saw him killed, who went to his tomb, who saw him buried, and saw him alive again. And that historical fact has changed the world. Jesus is alive today. 
You know, I just saw uh, there was a thing in the news the other day where this, you know, the Church of the Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is, there's a debate about whether or not that is real tomb or not. But the cool thing about it is they open that up and they have what was supposedly, you know, by tradition, the very slab on which Jesus' body was laid after his burial. Well, even, even that, there's no body there, guys. They, there's not a skeleton. There never will be. You know, there never has been, there never will be. They've been trying to find that for all these centuries. He's alive. And that fact that these guys testified to, that changed the world. I mean, there's a reason that 3,000 people raised their hand on Pentecost when Peter was teaching and gave their lives to Jesus Christ because they knew the things he was talking about were true. He had, they had seen Jesus. They had seen the things that he had done, many of those people, and they believed that testimony, but they also they believed their own eyes. Even those that didn't see him alive again, they knew it to be true, and that, again, that's why people are being saved every day today. We don't have to get caught up into all that, guys. I mean, and, and again, the further out we get from that, 2,000 years later, well, you weren't there, you didn't see, but what is that firsthand testimony that Jesus Christ has done in your own heart? We do have the reliability of the scriptures. We do have the reliability of the gospels, archaeologically, everything else. But what's he doing in your own lives? And if you don't have anything to tell anybody that's happened anytime recently, remember God is a God of the present. God is a God of the now, of the today. Now certainly, um, there's certain memorials that we all have in our lives, that time when you first got saved, that time when you first gave your heart to the Lord. But God is doing something in your life every day. The final thing that I wanted to talk about, and I guess the worship team, well, not quite. Settle down. <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most attested historical fact in all of human history. And again, like they've been attacking that, attacking that, attacking it, but it's true. And it is powerful today. And Jesus, when it says, you know, the last thing I want to talk about, God is coming. God is coming back. Just like he left, just like all the promises that he gave us were assured by him rising from the dead, that promise of his return is also assured. But I wanted to take another, God is coming right now, today, every minute of your life. He's always coming. God is the I am. He's wanting to do a work in each one of our lives every minute of every day. He's always bringing us to these little decision points, isn't he? These little places where we can choose to have faith or we can choose to have anger or fear. You know, we can choose to be his children or we can choose to be you know, react in our flesh or whatever it is, the decisions we make, whether they're financial, whether they're moral, ethical, whatever it is, we're always being brought to that point. And that, all those times, that's a continual firsthand testimony that God is working out in our hearts and in our lives as a witness to our family members, our friends, our neighbors, anybody that we come in contact with. The last thing, and this time, worship team, I am ready for you. Y'all coming up and going to finish up with a song. Um, back to 1 John. 
verses 16 and 17. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And I chewed on that verse for a long time. What exactly does that mean? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And, you know, after going through our study and just really thinking about it, I mean, that, that can have a lot of different aspects to it. But what is, what is Paul saying twice in this verse and really trying to point out to us is that God is the epitome, the definition, the entirety of love. And as he is, that's how he wants us to be to the world around us, right? When someone, when they think of, and, you know, God's talking to me first and foremost because I know I'm not like this. But when someone, what do they associate you with? What do they associate me with? You know, I've never really been associated with being a really loving person. You know, I understand that. God's working on me on that, so have patience. But that's what God wants for all of us. And not just something where you run up and throw flowers at somebody and I just love you. You know, it's not really that. It's like, are you there for them? Do they know that if they call you in the middle of the night that you'll help them change a tire out on Highway 50 or something? Or do they think, man, he's just, he's into his own thing, man. I ain't going to call him. You know, I'll call somebody else. I'll call Paul. Paul will be there every time, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's what, that's what God, as he is, as he is love, so also are we in this world. In this world. And we are in it. We are in the middle of it. You know, uh, Curtis, uh, we were down at the bridge messing around or having a little meeting. And, you know, he's... Uh, He's real convinced after this election we're all going to be cooking on wood fires outside. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if that's going to happen quite yet. It might someday. But you know, man, I mean, things are about to get crazy in our country either way. They already are. They've already changed so much just in the last eight years, ten years. But think about how much things have changed, and they're going to continue to change until the end when Christ comes back. And God's going to give us more and more and more opportunities to be his love in the world, you know, to the world. You know, as they become more and more confused and darkened, you know, it's going to be up to us to say, I know you think I'm hating you because I say it's wrong for you to live together before you're married or because you're smoking pot every day or whatever it is you're, you're into. But I want you to understand that, that I'm here for you and God loves you and God wants to save you from those things. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, that's what he's about. He's about new life and redemption. And that's what he wants us to be about, too. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You know, and part of that verse was being part of that vine, abiding in him and staying close to him so that he can use us in the lives of others. So that's my encouragement today. I hope that, uh, you know, I'm going to walk out of here. I'm sure God's going to give me some opportunities to do that too. I know he's going to do that for all of us. So let's uh, just rely on him, rely on his spirit. And again, he's powerful. 
He is alive today. He rose again. And uh, he wants to do that work in other people's lives as well. So, um, Lord, we just come to you again. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your, for your just steadfast love for us, your mercy on us. Make us more like you, Lord, and, and truly give us an abiding love for others, for the people in this community. Again, for family members that maybe we have a dispute with, for a friend that's hurt us, for whoever it is, Lord. Let us seek peace with one another and not compromise, you know, not, um, not ever saying sin is okay or that it's right or good, but always, Lord, as you, um, again, just give us your heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand with us.